2: I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground, the show where we explore what it takes to make meaningful change in a country that has become as divided as our country has become. I'm Van Jones. Look, on this show, we aim to find common ground across lines of difference. That's what we do. Now, it's one thing to try and talk to somebody who you disagree with on just a single issue just one hot topic. But what can you do when you're talking to somebody whose beliefs go against and negate your very identity as a human being? That is a lot harder. So today, we're going to talk with someone who takes on that challenge every single day. He is a black man who has convinced dozens of members of the KKK to leave that hateful organization and then give him their robes. His name is Daryl Davis. I'm not joking, this guy's really done this a many, many times. If you don't know Daryl Davis, he's an international recording artist, uh, he's a band leader, but he's, he has distinguished himself as an activist by deliberately seeking out and engaging in dialogue with members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, sometimes he's gone so far as to even befriend members of the Klan and his methods, they might seem crazy to people, uh, he's been criticized. They seem extremely dangerous to me, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But to date, Daryl has collected an estimated 26 robes from former, now former, Klansmen. Uh, he's been on the news a bunch of times for breaking bread with folks like the KKK's Imperial Wizard, Roger Kelly. Not only has he talked to Roger Kelly, he's gone to Roger Kelly's rallies. And Roger Kelly's even said on the record that he likes and even respects Daryl Davis.
1: Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. Listen to Kelly at a Klan rally. I'm a far man to hell on back, because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle cnn sunday morning
2: in this conversation daryl shares with us the tools that we all need to communicate effectively especially when it's hard and a common theme you're going to hear through the device, through with stories is that communication is actually our greatest weapon and as we become more diverse as a society the tools that we need to combat hatred and racism are more important than ever I think the stakes are very high, folks. In a time when it feels like there's rising extremism everywhere, racially motivated hate crimes are on the rise in the United States and around the world, I take Daryl's advice very seriously. I take his example very seriously, and I urge you to do the same thing. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Daryl Davis right after this quick break.
3: Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
0: If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/Wondery. That's RocketMoney.com/Wondery. RocketMoney.com/Wondery.
2: Well, if there is a single icon for uncommon ground, it would have to be a black jazz musician who has not only befriended members of the Ku Klux Klan, but gotten hundreds of them to actually change their mind, turn in their robes. And I think it's really important in this time. And so I just think the Uncommon Ground community needs to to hear from you. But I just wonder, could you maybe give us a little bit of your background? How did you find yourself in conversation with clan members and what were you trying to do
3: (laughs) (laughs) besides commit suicide (laughs) (laughs) when you when you first started. Well well first of all let me let me start by saying thank you very much for having me on here. You know, you you are the voice. Let me tell you what, you you really are. To understand my background, I'll be sixty four years of age next month. But I grew up as a child of parents in the US Foreign Service. I began traveling in nineteen sixty one at the age of three. So how it works is, you know, you're assigned to a foreign country for two years then you come back home here to the States, you're around for a couple months and then back to another country overseas. So my first exposure to school was overseas. And so my classes overseas were filled with kids from all over the world, Nigeria, Japan, Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, Denmark, you name it. So when I was overseas, I was basically living about 10 years ahead of my time. Because that multicultural environment had yet to come to this country, it's here now, you know, but it wasn't back then. Right. So one time when I came back, it was 1968. I was age 10, and I was in the fourth grade, and I was one of two black kids in the entire school. And uh, many of my of my male friends were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join. So I joined. This was in a town called uh, Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, and uh, we had a parade. To commemorate the ride of Paul Revere, I was the only black participant. The streets were blocked off, sidewalks were lined with nothing but white people waving and cheering, smiling, having a good time. Everything was fine until we got to a certain point in this parade when suddenly I began getting hit Mm. uh, with bottles, uh, soda pop cans, small rocks, and just, you know, debris from the street by just a small group of white people, a couple kids a year or two older than me and a couple of adults. Now, me having never experienced anything like that, my first thought was, oh, you know, these people over here on the sidewalk, you know, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader all came running over. They all were white. And mm-hmm. they huddled over me with their own bodies and shielded me and escorted me out of the danger. And at the end of the parade, I went, you know, I went home. My mom and dad, who were not in attendance, were putting Band-Aids on me and cleaning me up. And asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? What, you know, what did you trip on? And I told them I didn't trip and fall. I told them exactly what had happened. And for the first time in my life, then, at age 10, my mother and father sat me down and explained to me what racism was. That ideology was not in my sphere. I was around people from all over the world. We all got along. I had no experience with this thing called racism. And when they told me why this was happening to me, I literally, for the first time in my life did not believe my parents because my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me, never spoken to me, knew nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made no sense. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 53 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. Well, now we get to the answer to your question. (laughs) How did I end up with a Klansman? Well, I went to Howard University and got my degree in music, <clears throat> and there came a point when uh, country music had made a resurgence in this country. And so, you know, if you want to play full time, you join a country band, which is exactly what I did. And they had played this place called the Silver Dollar Lounge. The Silver Dollar Lounge was known as an all-white lounge. It had that reputation, and, you know, you knew you know, that you don't go somewhere where you're not welcome, especially if alcohol is being served. It's not Absolutely. a good combination. Not a good idea. Right. Not a good idea at all. So here I am in the Silver Dollar Lounge, and I'm the only black person in the band, only black person in the audience, you know, in the whole place. And we finished our first set, came off the bandstand, and I felt somebody come up behind me and put their arm around my shoulder. And it was this white gentleman, 15, 18 years older than me, big smile on his face. And then he tells me that this is the first time he ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I was not offended. You know, mm-hmm. but I was rather surprised, you know him being a decade and a half older than me, mm-hmm. that he did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano style. so right, I proceeded right. to tell him that I got it from the same place as Jerry Lee from black blues and boogie woogie piano players. Oh, no, 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 Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never heard no black man play like that except for you. I said, "Look man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where his influences were. The guy didn't believe I knew Jerry Lee either, but he was so fascinated. He wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. So I go back to his table, and then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And innocently, I asked, I said, why? He looked back at me just as plain as day after his buddy elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. He said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I burst out laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing? I burst out running. (laughs) On oh, no, first running, so okay. well, so you know I know a lot about the Klan because ever right. since that that uh, that you know Cub Scout experience, I bought books on Black supremacy, white supremacy, the KKK, and I know they don't just come up and embrace a black guy and want to hang out and buy him a drink and praise their talent. So I figured the guy is you know playing a game on me. I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and handed me his Klan membership card. I stopped laughing. This thing was for real. So, you know, it wasn't funny. But he was very, very friendly. He gave me his phone number and uh, wanted me to call him anytime I was to return to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, you know, to see, as he put it, the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. I'm not sure that's what he called me to his friends. Right, but, right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's what he wanted to do. So I called him every six weeks, you know, whenever we were back at that bar. And he would come. He would bring Klansmen in. Well, wait, wait, wait. Can we just, but just stop
2: for a second? Sure. See, you already have departed from ninety nine point nine nine percent of black people. <laughs> and I don't want you to just rush past it because again, we're living in an age where if you agree with somebody on ninety nine things, but you, you disagree with them on say immigration, or you disagree with them on make it up abortion, whatever it is. One issue, we can no longer be friends, we can no longer have a conversation. In fact, every conversation we have to have is gonna be about that issue. And Yet you have decided that you got up from this table. Most people would have stood up immediately. You get up, you get away, and you're still deciding to call and be engaged with this guy. Why? I know why. He wants
3: some music. What do you want? Actually, you know, you're not going to believe this. But at that point in time, I just viewed him as a fan. (laughs) I was... Listen, man, I wasn't thinking anything about the KKK. This guy wants to know when I'm playing again. He wants to come see me. Cool. He's going to bring some friends. Okay, cool. So then at the end of that year, I quit that band. But then a few years later, it dawned on me. It just hit me in the head like, Daryl, you know, you blew it. The answer to your question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? It fell right into your lap and you didn't even realize it. Who better to ask? You know, than somebody who would join an organization that practices hating people who don't look like them, who don't believe as you know as they believe. So I, I got a hold of him, and I got him to hook me up with the Klan leader for the state of Maryland. I want to interview this guy. Well, he didn't want to hook me up. He was afraid for my safety and his own, and he warned me. He said, Daryl, do not go to his house. He will kill you." But I said, "Well, you know, that's the whole reason why I need to see this guy, because." I need to understand why would he do that? He doesn't even know me.
2: Okay, well, hold on a second. I see again. I'm gonna stop the tape because. (laughs) Did you miss the part about getting killed? (laughs) That that would be a non-trivial, sir. That would be a non-trivial revelation for most people going to somebody's
3: house. Well, you know, to your point though, Van. To your point, perhaps had I not had all this travel and all this exposure to different people from all over the world, different cultures, belief systems, would I be doing this today? Maybe not. Maybe you know. Maybe you'd be right on target. Well,
2: but here's a good thing. We we know the the ending of the story now. Not only did he not kill you, you killed something in him over time. But in that moment, again, because I'm talking to people who maybe haven't even haven't even thought about talking to their friend from high school who posts bad stuff on Facebook. In
3: that moment, where you scared for your safety, no, not at all. Hmm. Why not? Um, I, I would rather see somebody in a robe and hood and know where they come from mm-hmm. than see somebody in in a uh, in a police uniform with a badge and a gun and think I know where they come from. And be, and be wrong. And be wrong, exactly.
2: So you felt like at least, at least you, there was some truth in advertising. And Absolutely. You were, and you were willing to take that risk. So, so, what, so what happens? You, you, you ring on the doorbell and he comes out with a shotgun? Just what happens? I mean, that's, that's a crazy
3: situation. Well, no. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, that happened a few times. So I, I interviewed people all around, all around the country. And, uh, you know, they did not know that I was black before I showed up for the interview some would talk to me some would not talk to me some want to fight and we fought i won what you mean physically fought physically fight yeah i i beat them in the street and then i took them to court and beat them there wow
2: now that now that story is not as well known people usually just hear so just explain that so we'll go back to the to the clan leader the first one but on your journey you meet somebody who is not willing to be conversational and you wind up in an actual
3: fistfight tell me that story well it's happened a few times but um one time, uh, these two clansmen were charged with assault with intent to murder a black man. They beat the daylights out of him and left him for dead. And um, <clears throat> I went to their court trial, and the judge sentenced one of them to seven years in prison and the other one to fifteen years in prison. Well, the clans showed up in support of their brothers, right? And they're all standing along the back wall of the courtroom, looking all tough. And on the last day of the, you know, when they got sentenced and taken out of the courtroom in handcuffs, I was leaving the courthouse. And a couple of them approached me and attacked me. They were just furious. They could not believe that a white man could go to prison for assaulting a black man. That was just not in their realm of comprehension. And so they took it out on me and I let them have it. Simple as that, you know? Now look, all, 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 so far in the story, all I've heard about
2: is about your hands is 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 tickling the ivories on the piano. I know you have some hands. Uh, <laughs> how did you learn all you all your lovey dovey talk about getting along with everybody and we are the world? How did you learn how to fight and enough to beat up a clans member? I'm a former uh, martial arts champion from way back. You, you you wouldn't you wouldn't know it right now. So that gave you some confidence. Had you already learned that martial arts in your very first meeting? Oh yeah. So you had some physical confidence in yourself in addition to the curiosity.
3: But, you know, I, was, I wasn't even thinking about, you know, having to to defend myself. Okay. Um, th- you know, that goes back to the first meeting that almost ended pretty bad. <clears throat> my secretary, uh, who was white, I had her call the Klansman. I knew that he would know by her voice that this is a white woman on the end of the line. And I knew enough about the mentality that he would not automatically assume that this white woman was working for a black man. So I had Mary, my secretary, give him a call. He agreed to do the interview. He didn't ask what color I was. And we set it up for a motel room. And uh, he showed up right on time. I realized the apprehension. And I walked forward. And the guy's name was Roger Kelly. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. I'm Darrell Davis. And he shook my hand. Well, a little over an hour into this conversation, there was a, a very fast, very short noise that came out of nowhere. It was like a... That was it. But I perceived it to be an ominous, threatening noise. And I also knew that Mr. Kelly, the Klan leader, sitting right across from me, had made this noise. How did I know that? Because I didn't make it. So, you know, if you don't do something, you blame it on somebody else. And first thing I did was I flew out of my chair and hit the table. I was about ready to dive across that table, grab the bodyguard, grab the Klan leader, and slam them down to the ground and take away the bodyguard's gun. Uh, When I hit the table, I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. I didn't say a word. My eyes were speaking for me. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? Well, his eyes had fixated on my eyes. His eyes were asking me the same question. What did you just do? Well, Mary was sitting on top of the dresser to my left, and she realized what had happened and began explaining it when it happened again. We had, b- before they even came, Mary and I had gotten some soda pop out of the vending machine and put it in the ice bucket, filled it with ice to get it cold so I could be hospitable, you know, and offer my guests a drink. And we didn't realize that the ice had begun melting And the cans of soda were falling down the ice. Uh. So, you know, but here is the key. Even though we were on opposite ends of the spectrum, we both felt fear at the same time. And then when the fear was addressed and we realized there was something to fear, we both started laughing. All because some foreign, underscore, highlight, circle the word foreign entity of which we were ignorant, that being the bucket of ice, cans of soda, had entered into our little comfort zone, we became fearful. Ignorance breeds fear. If you don't address that ignorance, it will escalate into hatred. If you don't address the hatred, that will escalate into anger and destruction. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO.
0: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop.
2: Well, listen, if I'm listening to this story, I think I've got a good, clear sense now of who you are and what you've done. Most of the people in the Uncommon Ground community are not going to do what you do. <laughs> I'm not going to do what you do. <laughs> and so I want to get now to the to, to the practical for people who are inspired by you and who in their own lives have challenges. What practical advice do you have for people who are trying to overcome the barriers in our regular lives, it may not include clans members, but do include real divisions.
3: What I advise people to do is this, walk across the cafeteria. Once or twice a week, leave your comfort group at lunchtime and walk across the cafeteria and sit with somebody who you don't normally sit with. But let's, let, let's
2: talk about this, because the reason people don't do it, they don't know how. What works in starting these conversations and what doesn't work? I think a lot of times people want to start the conversation with "you guys are, right, are wrong, I'm right." You need to agree with me, and the conversations don't go well, and then people never want to do it again, or they haven't even tried. They've just they're they're afraid it's going to go badly, so nobody does anything. So so let's get you're you're the technician. of This what needs to be in your mind and your heart. How do you start a conversation? Because it can't start it can't start with "give me your clan robe." That's not right. how you start. How do you start? <laughs> that,
3: that doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Everybody, no matter where they are, they all want to be loved. They all want to be respected. They all want to be heard. They want to be treated fairly. And they basically want the same things for their family as you want for your family. And if you learn to apply those five core values or any of those values when you find yourself in an adversarial situation or in a culture or society in which you are unfamiliar, I will guarantee your navigation would be much more smooth and much more positive.
2: That sounds good in the abstract. But but what if what if you're talking to somebody, and again, this may, may be in the extreme, but suppose you're talking to somebody, you know, they're not being respectful toward you. They're not being respectful toward me. They're not showing uh, regard toward me. They're not listening to me. And now you're saying that I've got to somehow come up with, how does this work? I mean, you've done it. That's why I can, I can push on you hard because you've done it. You've done it so long that some of these things for a beginner may not be present in your mind. How do you approach it when you may not get that love and that respect back right away?
3: How, how do you start? How do you get it going? You have to know who you are. You can't go in there emotional and not know who you are. Because if you go in there not knowing who you are, they're going to tell you who you are and you might walk out believing them. All right, so I'll I'll give you a classic example. This is true, okay? I said, said, you know, how can you hate me? You don't even know me. Well, Mr. Davis, you know, uh, black people are prone to crime, and that is evidenced by the fact that there are more blacks in prison than white people. Okay, so the guy sitting right across from me is calling me a criminal because of my black skin. But now what he is saying is true. There are more blacks in prison uh, than white people. Disproportionately. Now, the reason he's saying is not true because we're more prone to crime you know, he's not considering the imbalance in the in the uh, judicial system. Now, is what he is saying offensive? Absolutely. Am I offended by it? Absolutely not. Why? Because I know, I know who I am. What he is saying is totally untruthful. Why should I be offended by a lie? I sit back and I listen to him. I allow him to be heard. I'm not respecting what he is saying. I am respecting his right to say it. So as I do that, his wall is coming down. And so now he feels compelled because I listened to him. I respected him. He's going to treat me fairly. He's going to to say, you know, so what do you have to say? So now it's my turn. And I say, I hear what you're saying. However, I don't have a criminal record. That does not apply to me. So now he's hearing me, right? So I'm not attacking him. His his, his wall is down. It's sinking in. Now, he's not going to change right there. But Van, I can tell you this for a fact because I've seen it so many times over the last 40 years. These people go home. And just like you will tonight, like I will, we contemplate the things that we did during the day. And he's thinking, man, I just had a three-hour conversation with a black man, you know, and we didn't come to blows. And what that Darrell guy said, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said was true. Oh, but he's black. So they're having a cognitive dissonance. And then it comes to a point where they have to make a decision. Do I believe what he said because I know it to be true? Or do I continue living a lie? And then most of them, not all, because there will be people who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. But most of the ones that I've encountered, they eventually change. And some of them even come out with me on my lecture circuit and speak with me to to the audience. So
2: I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate what you've done. I don't want to underestimate what it takes to do that. But I will say for myself, I think growing up in a small town in the rural South, as I did, to your point, going to school with, you know, black kids and white kids, but most of us didn't have anything. You had to learn how to get along with people. And you saw more of a person than just what they tweeted. There was no Twitter. Uh, You would see them on Monday and then Tuesday and Wednesday. You could see through the different sides of them. You see them when they're coming to school, uh, maybe getting teased because their pants are too short. And you understand why that kid then might take it out on another kid and, you know, these different things. And so you just you have more well-rounded, fewer people. So I think our childhoods uh, in different ways, though I grew up in the, in the South and you grew up outside the country, give us some ability. But I don't, I, I can't tell you, man, people look at you and me as bizarre because I think a lot of people feel that it's been the people on the bottom who have given too many concessions. We've bitten our tongue too often, number one. And number two, how do you even find the strength uh, internally to do this over and over again? How would you approach it if somebody is a former high school classmate, a relative, a coworker, somebody you've got to deal with and you just see things so differently? I mean,
3: how how would you start? You start by finding common ground. I mean, yeah, okay, com- compared to the coworker, your family member, your neighbor, your your schoolmate whatever, I have gone to the extreme. All mm-hmm. right? So if I can, if I can walk into a clan rally and walk all, all around the world, certainly you can walk across the cafeteria or across the dinner table. You spend 5 minutes with your worst enemy, you're going to find something in common. Sure. And that and that narrows the gap. That narrows the gap. You can talk for another 5 minutes, you're going to find a little bit more in common. And when you get here, you're in a relationship with that person. You know, you still may be Adversaries, but you're in a cordial relationship as opposed to antagonistic.
2: Well, let me tell you what they, what they let me tell you what they always say to me. But now you're validating them, Van Jones. You standing next to a Republican. Now that Republican is validated. You're you're making him look good, even though he's bad. How do you deal with this idea that people feel like if you talk to somebody and you relate to somebody, you're somehow giving them some glory that's
3: undeserved? No, you're not giving them glory. You're giving them an an opportunity to express themselves. Because if you want your words to sink in to somebody else, you have to afford them the same courtesy of listening to them. Now, you you know, yeah, you're going to hear a lot of crap and a lot of nonsense, a lot of insults, a lot of things that simply are not true and that are offensive and hurtful. But you know who you are. If my mother told me I was a criminal and my dad told me I was lazy and they told me that I was stupid, maybe I would believe them. But not somebody who walks in the room five minutes ago and doesn't know me. Why would I believe him? Why would why, why, I get upset over something that's not true? He, he only knows what he knows.
2: I think that people feel like it's those ideas that result in, in, in death and destruction. And that the minute that th- those ideas come into the room, I've got to attack them with the full force of my being or I'm complicit.
3: Now, now have you noticed cuz I, I lived in Africa for 10 years I lived in Ethiopia four years, Ghana two years, Guinea two years, and Senegal two years. Have you noticed that African people who are over here in the United States, they react differently than Black Americans? Why? Because they didn't have the same experience, even though they are looked upon as as we all are the same, because they are rooted in who they are. We haven't quite gotten rooted in who we are yet, and that's what we need to do.
2: This is a very profound point which I had not thought about until you just said it. It is true that people who grow up in, you know, all African contexts where the mayor is African and the president's African and all the pilots are African, their teachers are African, the smart professor's African, the dumb professor's African, their sense of who they are when they get dropped in U.S. context, people start saying, you know, treating them differently. The well of, of personal dignity has been dug deep enough that they are able often, not all, but often are able to respond from a different place than those of us who've been here for 400 years getting treated like garbage for for generations. We do tend to have, I think, less sometimes just, you know, the the skin is thinner because it's been abraded and abused so much. But you actually have a lot in common with African folk in that you also grew up in a different context, that you also grew up outside the United States and being exposed to different things and being in an environment where till the age of 10, your human dignity and your well of self-respect have been dug deeper and deeper without any interruptions. And that is also part of the power you hold over the people that we sometimes talk about.
3: And that's what I was saying. You know, maybe if had I not had, had that travel experience, yes. would I be doing this today? Maybe not. You know, but one thing that, you know, that we also need to be concerned about today is this, the year 2042. So, When we were kids, the black population in this country was 12 percent, Native Americans 1 percent, Hispanics almost 2, Asians almost 3, white people 86, 87 percent. Today, whites are 59 percent. This is happening.
2: The majority is no longer going to be the majority.
3: Exactly. And while there are a vast number of white people who don't care about that, hey, that's cool, I got no problem with that, I welcome that, there's also a large percentage that does care. And what people in the neo-Nazi movements, the alt-right and the Klan, they tell me, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. So they feel that their identity is being squashed. That's what they're saying. They're saying, come join us. You know, when I first started this almost 40 years ago, there was the Klan, white power skinheads, and neo-Nazis. Now you've got the Klan, white power, skinheads, neo-Nazis, the Proud Boys, the alt-right, the Oath Keepers, the 3-percenters, the 1-percenters, on and on and on. And they're all saying, come join us. You know, we're going to take our country back. And people, out of fear, go and join these groups. But then when the group fails to take our country back, some of them get frustrated and say, you know what? If the Klan can't do it or the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they walk into a black church by themselves. And boom, boom, boom. Or the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, same thing. The Walmart in El Paso. The, uh, the Sikh Indian Temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, unfortunately, Van, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves. Because these people are getting unhinged out, out of fear. And every time they arrest or shoot one of these lone wolves and search their, you know, the person's house, they find a cache of automatic weapons which are being stockpiled for what they call Rahowa, R-A-H-O-W-A, which is the white supremacist term for the race war. It stands for racial holy war, Rahowa. We need to be vigilant and understand the fear that is overcoming these people.
2: Well, I tell you, you're someone who has somehow been able to overcome the fear on on our side. Most people who are on the side of, of, of progress and human rights and human dignity You know, we come to that out of fear. We come to that out of having been bullied, having been mistreated, having been marginalized. And that fear is good because it makes us more vigilant, makes us want to stand up and and make things better. But it also can limit our ability to be effective when it turns into emotions that we can't handle and that wind up just putting us, you know, in the same reactive pattern that does not move. You've been able to overcome some fear. And as a result, you've been able to calm some fears, at least in the individuals you've been able to work with, and set a pattern. And you know, my hope is that the uncommon ground community can take inspiration from what you're doing. We have more capacity than we're using on any given day. There is more in us—a deeper breath, a pause, a stand for the other person's greatness. Knowing the other person, even though they may be saying stuff in your own family that you hate or things that, that drive you nuts, you know that they're better than they're showing up, and we have to be better as well. And what I love about you. My father used to always tell me to lead means to go first. That's what it means to lead. You've been willing to to go first and to show real leadership. I hope that we'll be able to talk more and I hope we'll be able to have you back more and more because this this is real stuff and everybody in the Uncommon Ground community can overcome fear at some level and do more than we've been doing. And I appreciate the example
3: you're setting, sir. Thank you for having me, Van. Look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.
2: We see the beauty of hope That spirit is so beautiful.
1: Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp. To welcome them to the Golden Door.
2: I hope you were as moved by Daryl's example as I was, and to get an even deeper understanding of the incredible work that Daryl Davis is doing, check out his 2016 documentary. It's called Accidental Courtesy, Daryl Davis Race in America. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked everybody to share stories of how you've reached out to somebody in your life who holds a different opinion than you do. We got so many great responses. And since I want this to be a community where we actually are growing together and learning from each other and sharing stuff, I want to share with you a couple of my favorite responses right now before we close. Take a listen.
0: Hi Van, my name is Harper Clay. Hello from Bozeman, Montana. To answer your post about what is one thing you have done to engage people that think differently than you, I moved home to Montana. I'm from a fifth generation cattle ranch and I brought your film The First Step and my dear friend Brandon Kramer home and Louis L. Reed and we went to my community church and invited everyone and had a very moving and powerful Q&A afterwards. Next step, going deeper into rural America where my family ranch is and start engaging with people there. I'm living it and I'm embodying it here in rural Montana as an artist back in the frontier. Thanks for your podcast and for what you're doing. In college, I met this guy and realized that I'd spent my whole life only being around liberals and and around those opinions. And it really opened my eyes to a whole new type of thought and set of ideas. And so what we ended up doing was we actually started a podcast together and we would um just approach trendy news and just give the liberal and the conservative position on on both of those and yeah it was really helpful in terms of trying to understand how someone else might see the issue and we did it with the hopes that um people listening would be able to break out of their bubble a little bit um I love the podcast keep doing the great work
2: that's this week on Uncommon Ground. Talk to you next week. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesawa Agbinal, Sundus Hassan-Noli, and Lindsay Craddlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walt Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louis, and Chris Jackman.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts.